He's slightly younger, but he's a cuss of a lot bigger. That's just genetics, I guess. Ash has a littler body type. Watch this, Dad! Well, well. Good jump, Ash. Remember to keep your tail tucked. Still painting thunderstorms, I see. Do you still feel poor? Less so. <laughs> Woohoo! Woo! Whoa! Look at that! This kid's a natural. I'm speechless, Christopherson. Plus, he knows karate. Do you think I'm an athlete? What are you talking about? Well, you know, I think I'm an athlete, and sometimes I feel like you guys don't see me that way. What's the subtext here? Is he praying? I think that's yoga. How long is Christopherson supposed to stay with us? Until your uncle gets better. Right, but roughly how long do we plan to give him on that? Double pneumonia? Isn't really that big of a deal, is it? Lower your voice, Ash. So before we begin, let's uh, do a review. Like I said, chapters 1 to 7 is recorded. You can find it on their website. So let's uh, start with chapter 8, okay? Let's review chapter 8. Chapter 8 and 9 was about to how to find comfort in God when faced with pain of feeling we don't have enough. You know that feeling? We know that, we're, we're, that as Christians, we're supposed to go, okay, I'm supposed to be content in every circumstance, every situation. That's what Philippians keep on telling us. That's what we've been memorizing our verses, right, when we were younger. Be content in every circumstance, right? However, even though we know that, we still find ourselves each day saying to ourselves, how come I don't have enough money, right? Or how come I don't have enough of this, right? Or why does this person have this and I don't, right? And it's like, and then suddenly we, get, we wake up and, and say, oh God, why did I do that again, right? I said it again. I know that I'm supposed to be content. Oh, forgive me, Lord. And then the next day we do it again, right? Because like, we're so easily tempted. And in that dilemma, that, um, that irony, that the whole conflict inside, that's the type of pain that uh, Paul is addressing in chapter eight and nine, right? The, the, I know what I want, I know what I need to do, but I keep doing what I do not want to do, right? It's uh, that whole idea, that dilemma inside of us. And knowing that, Paul says, well, I've been through that too. And then we explored Philippians, uh, the book of Philippians, because they were the Macedonians that Paul were referring to. They experienced it too. Now, how did they overcome it then? And we went through chapter 89 and we sort of saw that the own, in order to address that and to find comfort in God in times of that troubled discomfort of knowing that we should be content, but we're not, is that he says, he tells us we need to receive grace well. First is to understand what grace is, and second is to receive it well. And so how we, that week we defined what grace was, and you could find that in the podcast, but then how do we receive it well? Well, he says first is to be cheerful, is to be thankful. It's to be thankful with a, and so he says gratitude is actually an attitude. 
The best way to overcome the fear of not having enough is to A, remember what we have in Christ. Remember the three foundations? One of the foundations and one of the key ones was the seal of the Holy Spirit. That inheritance that we have that's guaranteed for us. The immense treasures that we have that is awaiting us and already have. That glorious body in the royal heavenly footlocker, right, is waiting for us when we die. That. And the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who has given us this reward that we don't deserve should be enough. Far more enough than anything that we have. So he, Paul says in, in the letter B, and the second thing, he goes, and because anytime we see ourselves and, and tell ourselves, okay, we don't have enough, what we're actually saying is that, Jesus, your death is not enough. Every time we just say, oh, we don't have enough, or we need more of something, it means, basically, we're not telling that to ourselves. We're actually telling that to Jesus, saying, you know what, Jesus, your death on the cross was not enough. I need more. That treasure that you gave me, that, that, that through that, your death and resurrection, that I did not even need to lift a finger to so had to believe, that's not enough, Jesus. I want more. That's what we're saying. And Paul says, don't do that. You have to remind yourselves of what you already have, which far outweighs everything that you currently want. Amen? All right. So, second, he says, like, remind ourselves of also the God's wonderful promise. Now, remember the third foundation, right? God will deliver us. So the trials that we are currently facing, especially when we don't have enough, like uh, Paul, uh, and then especially the, the Philippians, remember that they were kind of like, in the 21st century, how would you say, lived paycheck by paycheck, right? Uh, Paul gave up a really good lifestyle. You know, he was set for life. He graduated from Harvard, of all things. Not like Harvard's equivalent, okay? So it's like Tarsus, right? But it's Harvard. And he graduated with like four PhDs, okay? He also has tons of work experience, and he's like a CEO. You know, he was ready. He was like, he was Saul, remember? And then he was at the top echelon of the whole synagogue. He had a really good payday every week because, you know, they just pay taxes to him, right? So he gave that up. He gave sustainability, a set-for-life salary, and he gave that up for a paycheck-by-paycheck paycheck lifestyle where days when he would be starving, days where there would be no work for him as a tent maker, days where he would be just lining up, preaching the gospel within that night, and he's lining up for a job and no worse coming. And days where he has nobody to host him for, to live, so he's living in, in a cardboard box. Well, what's equivalent to a cardboard box back then? I don't know. But a cardboard box, you know what I mean, right? He's living by paycheck by paycheck. And then he says that he's content because he's reminded of God's promise, that, he, that God will deliver him, and God will honor his work. God will bless him. Remember that week? God will actually make his work fruitful. Well, you will no, no longer labor that long anymore, Paul. That's what God would say. But you will be blessed, and I will honor you. Remember the Philippians. How were they content in every circumstance? Remember the Philippians, they were retired gladiators. Right? They were retired gladiators. Gladiators who were slaves, enslaved by the Romans' conquered countries, if that made sense. You know how gladiators come to be, right? When the Romans conquer a country, those guys, the soldiers of, those, of that conquered country, becomes the gladiators of Rome, right? They're the slaves, they're the entertainers. 
And after their contract is over, Caesar would take them and place them in Philippi to just live out. And they'd have no money. They live on a medial pension that the, that the emperor gives them, and that's it. So they even know how to be content in every circumstance. Why? Because they're so thankful and they're reminded all the time of the great reward that they have in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, time for chapter 10. Let's move over to chapter 10. And you saw on that video, there was a little bit of a comparison going on. And I would like to uh, draw that comparison with uh, another story. Is it up there? Oh, yeah. There you go. Now, that's Annabelle when she was two? Yeah, two years old. And uh, uh, right next to her, right next to me uh, on, the, on my left, is her cousin, Tamara. Those two have a love-hate relationship, all right? But let me begin with a story to tell you. She was two years old, Animal was two years old, and we were driving to a friend's birthday to Steveston, right? A restaurant in Steveston. And while we were driving, uh, well, it was more of me than her, well, than Rosanna. I go, oh, Annabelle, you know Tamara? She's no longer wearing a diaper. You know, like, why are you still wearing a diaper at night, right? Oh, Annabelle. You know, Tamara already knows how to read. You can't even read. <laughs> or, or Annabelle, like, you know, like, she's already, like, like, Tamara's already in sunfish, and you haven't even touched the water yet. You know, you know, that levels of swimming, right? Aaron knows. <laughs> you know, and, and Annabelle, like, blah, 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 right? And, you know, I thought that this would encourage her to, to you know, become more, you know, you know, you know, wow, you know, like, I thought that would give her a goal. No, <laughs> right? Uh, little did I know that as we were driving, it was harboring hate. There was like an immense anger in this little two-year-old's body, right? And it's just going to continue to churn and churn and churn. And how did I know? Once we got to the restaurant, we uh, put Annabelle side by side with Tamara on a high chair. You know, two high chairs side by side. Tamara kept on nudging, trying to play with Annabelle. Annabelle didn't have nothing to do with it. She gave her the cold shoulder, even a cold stare, just avoided everything, and just had this like, cross like, eyebrows right at her, right? Well, me, I'm like, oh my goodness, I, what did, have I done? Like, my, like, what horrible parent am I, right? <laughs> and then, but fortunately, kids have short memories, right, Fritz? You just give them a balloon, boom, they forgot. So, <laughs> you know, like, fortunately. But that really taught me a lesson, right, about comparison. Now, Interesting enough, though, as I evaluate my life and my, as I was growing up, I felt that I was compared too. I was compared. My parents did com like, compare me with, especially with, because I take piano back then. I, I took piano for like up to AR. And uh, I was compared to my cousin. And my cousin and I always ended up competing in the finals of everything. And Enoch knows who my cousin is. And, uh, and, and so every time I compete with my cousin, I always come second place <laughs> behind her. And uh, interesting enough, you know, I don't know if you know about piano concertos. You know, we have to compete. Uh, for those who ever competed in piano, piano concertos are long. There are three movements. So usually, there's only two contestants, right, in a, a concerto. And it's me and my cousin. Well, guess what? Guess who has to play for each other, right? My cousin would play for me, right? I would be the uh, prima, right? And then we flip when uh, she has to perform. I still come second. Even though I, I'm, I'm like accompanying her, I still come second. 
right? And even the like, uh, Canadian, uh, the whatever you go up, CNC competitions, I still come like third actually. <laughs> but you know, like, so, but then my parents always say, well, look at, sorry, Mel, I'm gonna name you here. It's like, oh, like uh, look at Melody. That's my cousin's name. Look at Melody, she practices two to three hours a day, right? You, one hour tops. <laughs> right? Like, look at Melody. She like when she comes to competition, she will practice like five hours a day. You only two, right? I'm like, frictionally, it's two, man. <laughs> right? And then you know, so it's continuing comparisons. Have you been compared then? Have you felt being compared? Whether it be when you were young or even compared now during uh, Christmas family gatherings or parties with friends especially, right? Comparisons. Uh, like I still remember some of my single friends. They go uh, a lot of their parents go so. When's your day? You know, like, come on, right? And, or uh, to my parents, uh, to my friends who are uh, couples, and then, uh, and then the, you know, they're in a baby shower, and then they don't have a kid yet, and then suddenly they just got these, you know, everyone has these aunties, right? They come to you and they go, so, it's like, yeah, okay, the next time, we'll think of you. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, so, yeah, like, like, think about it, right? Like, uh, we're always, always comparing, you know, oh, when you're gonna have your first child, second child, third child, fourth child. So. When are you going to get rid of a he or she or something? Sometimes it can be implied as well, right? These comparisons. Um, I know we as a church, we try to be, you know, uh, we sometimes don't know it, but comparisons can be implied even at church. Uh, Fritz and I come from one church where it's predominantly young families. Well, that's a lot, that's good in a way, but then when the church that only caters to ministries to young families and neglects singles, especially the 30s and 40s singles, that's also a comparison, isn't it? It's implied, right? When people enter through these doors, they go, oh, they look at our uh, programs. It's only for like uh, young families and elderly. Where did the singles people go then? Comparisons, right? Paul was being compared. And in this particular chapter, we're going to see how Paul finds comfort in God when being compared. So let us begin with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. I will read from sorry, 7 to 12. Some of you are laughing at this picture. You know him. You are judging by appearances, Paul says. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is pathetic, unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Now underline, if you can with your digital Bibles, or just use a pencil and just scratch it on your phone, uh, actions, all right, when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. See, the Corinthians are telling Paul, Paul, you're not Christian enough. You're not measuring up to our Christian standards. Now, before we go on, we have to remember that Christianity and spirituality for the Corinthians has nothing to do with, you know, uh, being close to Christ, right? No. The better example for them is uh, to that we could relate is that they use Christianity as something to add in their resume, right? For career advancement, right? For 
to get a higher pay, a higher job, because in Corinth, spirituality was a hot commodity. The more spiritual you are, heck, the more gods you believe, right? The more uh, versed you are in various religions, like, uh, and I call it sometimes the religion of Jane, because uh, Jane would just believe in everything, right? And then just to put it all in the resume, just to get ahead, right? So remember that. The Corinthians were just treating Christianity and spirituality as a mere career or financial prospect. So Paul here addressed their ambitions and their problematic way of seeing Christianity in 1 Corinthians. We knew that. We went through a whole series on 1 Corinthians to just to address that. Right? Christianity was just a title marker. So in light of that, when the Corinthians are telling Paul, Paul, you're not Christian enough, what they mean is, Paul, you're not measuring up to what we think a successful Christian person is. You follow? They, they want to see a successful Christian person. They think that a successful Christian person should look like this. And then they would say, good in speech. That's the most important thing for them. That this person has to be really good and charismatic in talk. Remember what I said back uh, in 1 Corinthians, you know, flames coming out of the pulpit, smoke in the back or something, laser show, whatever, right? And a loud, booming voice, you know, and charismatic and good looking and plaid shirt, ripped jeans and glasses and park hair and beard and eats organic food. Am I referring to anyone? No. Anyway, so, you know, that type of thing, all right? An ideal Christian. Oh, yeah, and he has to be six foot six, you know, that type of thing, right? That's what they said. But Paul, unfortunately, didn't measure up. Paul, what did he say there? He says that, you know what, you're just this old, shriveled up, you know, raisinette. You know, like that, that just like, you know, it's not that tall, you know, he stutters and, you know, you know, you're so soft-spoken, you're introverted and shy in person, yet you don't compare it to the guy that we thought would be as you're writing these letters. So Paul, you don't seem to be the same person that is doing the talking in the letter. And so they're asking Paul, what authority then do you have to claim that you're in the same level as the apostles or the guys we have who have both the look and the talk? You follow? Because they themselves now have other teachers coming in. Because it's Corinth, right? So they have other teachers coming in, and they're like six foot six, well-spoken, prom and preem, like everything, good-looking, and, uh, and powerful speakers. And they're going, these guys are better than Paul, so we'll follow them. But unfortunately, these guys are teaching something that is not the gospel, but they're falling into it. We'll get into that. But first, that's what they're doing. They're comparing Paul with their own standards. Comparing Paul with themselves. I have this story to share. When I was uh, working for a furniture importing company, uh, I had a chance to opportunity to go to Thailand. And uh, you know me, I'm pretty much a, like yourself too, Kevin. Like uh, we're pretty tall for an Asian guy, right? Kinda, right? So then when we go to Thailand, I didn't realize that the average height in Thai is like around like five feet. Right, so you know, like uh, or four feet for that matter. So they're like this head, shoulder, like head, and they're comparing me with them, and and then whenever I walk by, they would say, "Hey, Yao Ming," right? Because and I don't know if you know Yao Ming, but he, he's a basketball player that retired recently, right? It's a Chinese basketball player, and he's like seven foot seven, right? But they call me "Hey, Yao Ming," right? And some guy tried to sell his jersey to me, you know, the Yao Ming jerseys, these fake ones. So you know, like, so that's a story about comparing with themselves. Right? They're using themselves as a comparison. Right? They're not uh, like, because if I was here, I would be one of the shortest guys here. Right? Like, but over there, I'll be tall compared to them. That's what Paul is saying. You're using yourselves to compare me. 
as opposed to a better standard, a greater standard. So let's go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 to 18. He goes like this. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us. So basically Paul is saying, uh-uh, don't compare me with your standards and with your own selves, right? So what you should do is compare me with what? Actions and service of God himself has assigned to us. A sphere that includes you, verse 14. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. Verse 16. So that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, for we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. But... Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Put, Paul is saying, put our authority to the test by how we practice what we preach instead of just the talk. Put our authority to the test by how we practice what we preach. Okay, example. Let's use me. Okay, you guys are examining me all the time. Right? As your pastor, you should be. Right? You should be criti critically engaging your pastor. Right? Do you see, whenever I say, I preach sermons, say, love your neighbor, do you see me love my neighbor? Do I show any evidence of loving my neighbor? Sure. Okay, you're not just saying just because you're being nice or Asian, right? Okay. Well, yesterday, uh, like, uh, it was a third annual block party that Roseanne and I did. And what, we saw about 300 people? 250, 300, all right? And uh, you know, if you've seen the pictures on my Facebook page, it's just like, there were tons of people, all right? But then also, not only that, like uh, you would, I sometimes uh, share my testimony about being a strata council president, changing light bulbs with my, like, uh, my neighbors, right? All 80 light bulbs, <laughs> right? And like changing light bulbs and having Annabelle, you know, catching the dead ones in midair, right? Or, you know, like uh, shoveling snow you know, like, uh, for my, uh, for my uh, strata, right? And shoveling snow because the, the plowers didn't show up. Loving my neighbor. So if I preach passages and tell you, love your neighbor, do you think that I have the authority to do so? Yes. That's what I mean by authority. Now, when you tell people to love their neighbors, be content and everything, and you practice it, do you think that you have authority to say it? Yes. Paul is saying that. That you, do not, you cannot compare people by the speech or mere appearance. We have to compare by the actions. But the way we practice what we preach. I always tell people that, um, like, especially people that come to me and say, oh, you're a pastor? I go, yes. Where's your building? We don't got one. <laughs> right? Like, we, we, we're, we rent a, on the third floor of a school. Right? They go, so do you have office hours? And I go, to tell you the truth, I don't believe in office hours. Actually, pastors should never be in the office, right? They should never be in the office. They should actually be engaged in the community every single day of the week, right? Book, uh, book some coffee meetings and everything, because if we do not do that, we have no authority to be at this pulpit. No authority. If you see your pastor here not doing what he preaches, just kick him out. Fire him, do something, right? Get rid of him. Because you know why? I have no authority. I'm just 
a blowhorn with a balloon, a hot air balloon, telling you how well I could tickle your brain. Yet, I do not show it practically for you. You, you follow? No authority. So Paul says, you know those folks that come and, uh, and try to convince you that I don't have authority? They are not practicing what they preach. Yet I am. And this is where he starts boasting. But it's not about boasting about himself or what he has done. No, this is what he did, says. Boasting comes from the way that he, he, that he says that God uses a broken person to be used by God's purposes, for God's purposes. And what do I mean by that? Like uh, for me, every time I do things, it's not just because I boast about, oh, look how well I changed the fluorescent lights on my neighborhood, right? No, I, what I always am, am humble all the time whenever I could serve God in ways like the block party, like the community day, like uh, your, you folks who serve in the community day, is that how amazing that no matter how fallen we are, no matter how many times we have sinned against God, that God by his grace and mercy can always use us. And that's what we could boast about. And I think that's a right boast. The boast of saying that I am so humble and grateful for God to use me to, for these purposes, for these privileges to serve him this way, no matter how many times I have served porn or, or cheated on my taxes or the desire to uh, have more money or to, be, or to have lust or whatever, greed, right? No matter how many times I've sinned, God can still use me for his kingdom? That's what I will boast. The boast of God's grace and mercy. You follow? That's what he, Paul means by boasting. Boasting it does not necessarily mean, you know, like in our Asian way of saying, oh, pride, right? Like, you, you know, you're like high up there. No, that's not the boast that we're talking about in the, in the Christian sense. Christian sense means that no matter how fallen we are, wow, thank God, by his grace and mercy, we can still be used by him. He still thinks that we're worth it, that nothing is wasted in his presence. Praise God. All right, let's move on to the next uh, passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 6. Oh, we're going backwards a little bit because that's what we do for sometimes at least. So he says like this, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you then, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war against uh, as the world does. The weapons we fight are with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they are a divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolished arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of dis disobedience once you, your disobedience is complete. So let's sum up here for a brief moment before we move on to this passage. So how do we address being compared? Well, the first thing is we have to look at ourselves and whether our actions speak for itself. When we are being compared, like I say, somebody says, oh, why can't you be older, old, more mature than the other person, right? Especially in the spiritual sense. Well, we do not have to even fear that comparison if our actions speak louder than, if our actions speak louder than their comparison. You follow? So let's continue on with, with this. The Corinthians are asking with this passage, Paul, why do you not boast and pomp like the successful people we know then? Why don't you, Jonathan, why don't you like, boast about the wonderful fluorescent lighting that you have just uh, you know, posted up? Okay? And Paul's answer, 
It was, it's one of the foundations he's been leaning on for the majority of the letter. I'm suffering alongside what Jesus is suffering, which means that as we serve, as we minister, we're suffering alongside with Jesus too. As we are being compared by others, we're suffering alongside with Jesus as well. Recall that uh, foundation. And so Paul says, I don't need to boast like, and, uh, and brag about my accomplishments because I'm just uh, suffering alongside with Jesus. I'm ministering with, with alongside with Jesus. You do not need to compare me because, and your comparisons don't mean anything anyway. It's because Jesus is with me. And if you're comparing me, you're actually comparing with Jesus too. You're measuring up Jesus with the other guy. You follow? And that's why it's so important for this foundation as well to address, to find comfort in God when being compared. When you find yourself being compared with others, remember who they're comparing. It's the person in you. You are who's inside of you. And that's Jesus. And when you're being compared, remind yourselves, wait a minute, there's no comparison. Because uh, you're basically measuring yourself up against Jesus. It pales in comparison. So then Paul goes on to say, all right, he goes, he mentions about something about the war. And you know about comparisons and war. So what, what war are we in right now, currently then, in, the, in light of this comparison? We may not be in Paul's war, right, being persecuted, having fear of being executed, etc. But what war do, are we facing in the 21st century as a career professional? I believe the war that he's mentioning is, is there's a key here. It's called the war of this world. Remember what he said? The war of this world. And what is that? I think it is more about the war of freedom. The war of what I want, what I desire. The war of getting ahead. The war of feeling special. The war of feeling unique. The war of feeling uh, that I could be free to do whatever I want and do what I desire. That war. Knowing full well that we're supposed to follow the life and pattern, the life pattern that Jesus has given us. That war. You follow? When Paul says the war of this world, I believe that what he's saying is that our old self versus the new self. The war of between that what I really want and desire versus what it should be clear and given to, by Jesus. The pattern of this world versus the pattern of Jesus. That's the war. And this comparison thing is one of those sufferings that's part of that war. Because even though we don't I mean, try our very best to not follow the pattern of this world, people will compare us to the pattern of this world. Right? Think about it. Oh, why don't you have another child? That's a pattern of this world. Oh, why don't you get a better job? That's a pattern of this world. Right? You follow? So that's the war, the world, war that, of this world that we are against and against the pattern of, that uh, Jesus has given us, this war. And so how do we conclude then, summarize this whole thing then, when it's how we are continually faced with these comparisons? Well, there are many times that we are going to be faced with uh, the dilemma of, well, you know, like uh, it's, we have to follow the life the pattern of Jesus. But there's always these temptations, and people, especially our loved ones, keep on telling us that we should be doing better and measuring up against this and that. How do we find comfort then? Firstly, then, is to remind ourselves that Jesus is suffering alongside with us. That when somebody like our parents, our aunties, our friends are saying, look, Henry, you're not measuring up to so-and-so. How come you're not that? Remind yourselves that they're not saying it directly to you. They're saying it to Jesus. Because guess what? Jesus is inside you. 
and you're part of his body. And so who are they comparing? It's Jesus. And so the second truth is that God, in the end, has given you all these riches anyway, to begin with, in Jesus. So if you put those two together, these amazing treasures, that amazing glorious body, and Jesus is inside of you, who is the king of all world, <laughs> king of all kings and, and the, the Lord of all lords on this earth right now as we speak, is somebody comparing you with him? If somebody's like comparing you, remember who's in you. You are who's in you. And so nothing then compares with Jesus then. Everything pales in comparison. So there's no pain in comparison anymore. It's everything's pale in comparison with Jesus. You follow? And that is something that we, that how Paul found comfort in God when he's being compared. And that's how we can tap into these foundations to find comfort in God. That because we are in Jesus and because we are who we are because of who's inside of us, everything else pales in comparison. Fear not, people of God. When you are being compared, remember, they're not comparing you. They're comparing Jesus. Amen.